This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and capital punishment that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It was a warm July morning in 1872, and Dr. William Byers Kilburn wanted to be anywhere but in the Cotton family's cramped, stuffy kitchen. He'd lost too many patients there recently. Patriarch Frederick Cotton and his three sons had all died under Kilburn's watch in this house. A seven-year-old boy, one of the three recently departed Cotton children, lay sprawled out on the kitchen table like some kind of macabre centerpiece. His grieving mother was nowhere to be seen. Kilburn had made sure of that. The mechanics of an autopsy were no place for a woman's delicate constitution. That went doubly so for Marianne Cotton, the distraught mother and widow who'd lost her entire family. It was the least Kilburn could do to spare her the sight of her stepson's body being cut open and examined. With a pang of guilt, Kilburn selected a scalpel. This autopsy wouldn't have even been necessary if not for the vicious rumors spreading about Marianne's involvement in the young boy's death. Bad enough to lose her loved ones, now Marianne had to defend her reputation as well. Kilburn resolved to do what he could to clear up all that nasty talk. He'd make the examination quick. It was already a foregone conclusion that the boy had died of natural causes. Kilburn just needed to find the evidence to support his determination. And then... No one would ever again accuse Marianne Cotton of being a killer. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. 
Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we explored Mary Ann Cotton's early years and what motivated her to become a serial killer. Her lifelong struggle with poverty and gender inequality left her feeling that she had no choice but to poison her husbands and children in order to get ahead in the world. This week, we'll discuss Mary Ann's transformation into England's Black Widow. Over a decade and a half, she poisoned three different husbands and several children to collect on their life insurance payouts. As we covered last week, Mary Ann Cotton grew up in Sunderland, England, a poor mining community. In search of a life with more opportunities, she poisoned her first husband, William Mowbray, and their children with arsenic. Mary Ann went on to remarry George Ward, who also died of arsenic poisoning. With each untimely death, Mary Ann collected a life insurance payment. By late 1866, 33-year-old Mary Ann was once more on the hunt for a new husband. In December, she accepted a job as a housekeeper to 33-year-old James Robinson. A recent widow, Robinson had five children from his previous marriage. As well as the household duties, Mary Ann was also responsible for their care. She worked hard and spent time with Robinson's children, quickly ingratiating herself with the patriarch. They bonded over their shared widowhood, though it appears that Marianne only divulged the loss of one husband, not two. On her hiring paperwork, she used the last name Mowbray, not Ward. By the spring of 1867, just a few months after the pair met, they started sleeping together. Marianne was pregnant almost immediately, prompting James Robinson to propose. With no knowledge of her past murders, Robinson never suspected the danger he and his children were in. As we discussed last week, Marianne Cotton was just the latest of nearly a dozen women who poisoned spouses, children, and other loved ones with arsenic. Victorian British society provided women with few opportunities to break out of their strict societal roles. Therefore, for some, murder was their best shot at upward mobility. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology from here. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. Cultural psychologist Carl Ratner explored how widespread oppression influenced people who were treated as second-class citizens. These disadvantaged people often come to equate class with suffering and conclude that the only way to lessen their anguish is to gain money and social standing. In Marianne's case, 
That meant she consistently married increasingly wealthy men and then quickly murdered them to collect on their insurance policies. And that spelled doom for James Robinson. He was a shipwright, meaning he received a consistent, generous income. After Marianne and James were engaged, she had a shot at the genuinely refined life she'd always longed for. If only she could quell her killer instincts. Luckily, she had an opportunity to quench her dark impulses without threatening her pending marriage. During the time between Marianne's engagement and wedding day, she learned that her mother, Margaret Stott, had fallen ill. Marianne went to visit her in March of 1867. To be clear, Margaret was already sick before Marianne's arrival, but Marianne found her mother well enough to sit up in bed and on track for recovery. She ensured that would never happen. Psychotherapist and criminology professor Kathleen M. Heidi noted that it's incredibly common for people to fantasize about killing their own mothers. A survey of 18-year-old women found that 50% had entertained such thoughts. However, it's incredibly rare for a person to act on their killer musings, especially without a history of abuse. But Marianne was no ordinary woman. And for years, she'd been rehearsing for her mother's death. Two daughters named Margaret had already died in her care. Only nine days after Marianne's arrival in Siam, Margaret Stott was also dead. Soon after her mother's death, 34-year-old Marianne and 34-year-old James Robinson moved forward with their nuptials. On August 11, 1867, they held a small wedding in Bishop Wearmouth. Marianne was five months pregnant. Their honeymoon period didn't last long. Although Marianne now had all the wealth and security she could ever dream of, she still wasn't happy. Under her skin, Marianne was flailing. If only she'd been able to settle in, she could have lived out the rest of her life in luxury. But as the saying goes, idle hands are the devil's plaything. Marianne found that her life of wealth and security didn't bring her the peace she'd originally hoped it would. She grew to disdain James Robinson. Once again, she was desperate to relieve herself of her marriage. Marianne proceeded with her now usual MO. First, she eliminated unwanted stepchildren. Through the month of April 1867, child after child died, a son and two daughters. All the while, Marianne helped herself to her husband's wealth. Without his permission or knowledge, she withdrew his entire savings account, today the equivalent of roughly $2,300. It's hard to say where the money went, but in addition to taking Robinson's money, Marianne also pawned her linens and clothes for even more cash. But that still wasn't enough. She borrowed another $563 in Robinson's name. This proved to be a grave misstep, as the loan company notified her husband of the funds he owed. Robinson was both befuddled and enraged. He felt that Marianne had greatly overstepped her bounds by borrowing and spending without his consent. 
In November of 1869, Robinson threw Marianne out of his home. He may not have realized it at the time, but in abruptly breaking off their marriage, he saved his own life and that of his remaining children. As we discussed last episode, the laws of Victorian England made legal divorce incredibly difficult. Although men had more options than women, Robinson still would have needed to go to great lengths to dissolve his partnership. He never bothered. Although their marriage was over in all but in name, Marianne remained Robinson's legal wife. Without a divorce, she risked bigamy charges the next time she identified a potential spouse and victim. But for once, Marianne wasn't set on marrying for wealth, because just as she found herself estranged from Robinson, Marianne learned that her longtime lover, Joseph Natras, had recently become a widower. For most of Marianne's adult life, she'd only wanted a few things. Wealth, freedom, stimulation, and the one true love of her life, the perpetually unattainable Natras. In 1870, for the first time, 37-year-old Marianne and Natras were both single. And finally, after years of sneaking around in shame, Marianne moved into his home so they could finally be together. Yes, Marianne was technically committing adultery, but all it took was a move to South Hatton, where no one knew her past, and Marianne was able to openly stay with her lover, Thanks to poor record-keeping in the era, no one was wise to Marianne's secret. It seemed that Marianne had finally found her romantic happy ending, but in only a matter of months, she learned that life with Natras wasn't as idyllic as she'd always believed it would be. And soon, her fairy tale transformed into a horror story. Coming up next, Marianne Cotton's life with Joseph Natras takes an inevitable, tragic turn. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By 1870, 37-year-old Mary Ann Cotton had established a clear pattern. She seduced rich men, got pregnant, and pressured them to marry her to preserve her honor. Then, once she was secure as her new husband's heir and life insurance beneficiary, Marianne eliminated her unwanted spouse with arsenic, only to move on to her next target. But James Robinson disrupted Marianne's cycle in November of 1869 when he kicked her out of his house for stealing from him. Still legally married, but with no safety net, Marianne started living with her longtime lover, Joseph Natras. Marianne may have genuinely believed she'd be happy living with Natras. The pair's on again, off again sexual relationship had lasted roughly four years, starting around the end of her first marriage. They'd built a loving partnership during that time. 
But now, Marianne found that he was just as coarse and disappointing as the other laborers she'd married in the past. Although she didn't have extensive formal education, Marianne was highly intelligent and found herself bored with Natris's conversational skills. After the thrill of life as a serial killer, modest housewifery was torture to Marianne. And so, within a few weeks of moving in with Natris, Marianne left him to seek a wealthier husband who better suited her needs. At some point in early 1870, she moved to a new town, West Auckland. She quickly accepted a proposal from Frederick Cotton. She was taking a risk by committing bigamy, a hangable offense. But Marianne had already spent years evading the noose, and the risk seemed worth taking. Cotton was in mourning when Marianne came into his life. The record doesn't say exactly when Marianne and Frederick met, but around the time of her arrival, his sister died of pneumonia. Marianne saw a great opportunity in the grieving Cotton. She speculated correctly that he was eager to move on and build a new life, and she positioned herself as the perfect woman to rebuild a family with. Their fresh start lasted only a few weeks. Almost immediately after the marriage, Frederick Cotton's youngest daughter, Adelaide Jane, fell ill by Marianne's poison. The doctors, however, determined the symptoms were attributable to typhus. And in September of 1871, Marianne also eliminated her 39-year-old husband, Frederick Cotton. Next was her stepson, Frederick Cotton Jr., in March of 1872. Then that same month, baby Robert Robson Cotton. By the summer of 1872, all that remained of the Cotton family were Marianne herself and Frederick's seven-year-old son, Charles Edward Cotton. At this point, it becomes difficult to discern Marianne's motives. She'd already killed an estimated 14 people, three husbands, her own biological children, stepchildren, and mother. And although there's no reason to suspect any kind of close connection existed between Marianne and her stepson, Charles Edward, she didn't immediately murder him. Maybe Marianne was grappling with a creeping feeling of guilt. Maybe she didn't want to kill again. Or perhaps Marianne was just trying to stay a step ahead of the authorities. She might have believed that one more cotton death would draw too much suspicion. But it also could have been the opposite. Marianne was becoming increasingly reckless with her kills and showing off to a degree. She might have gotten a thrill from leaving a survivor behind, living alongside one person who could put authorities on her trail. Although Marianne wanted to avoid discovery, she also seemed to want someone to notice what she was doing. As her behavior became more risky, she seemed to relish the idea of showing off. Whatever her reasoning, Marianne allowed her stepson to live, and he was soon joined in the house by a new boarder. Marianne's lover, Joseph Natris. But this new arrangement didn't last long. In early July of 1872, a few months after poisoning Frederick Cotton Jr. and baby Robert, 
Marianne brought seven-year-old Charles Edward Cotton to a workhouse in West Auckland. Workhouses were Victorian England's homeless shelters, job placement centers, and prisons all rolled into one. Impoverished people could live on site and would be placed into low-skilled, menial jobs. But because the workhouse proprietors believed that poor people were all lazy or morally bankrupt, they tended to treat their tenants harshly. The mortality rate among workhouse residents was high, especially for children or minors. The owner of this particular workhouse was Thomas Riley, a local citizen who also served the community as a butcher, a farmer, and a pharmacist. When Marianne requested a spot in the workhouse for Charles Edward, Riley refused to take on the boy. Marianne replied, Perhaps it won't matter, as I won't be troubled long. He'll go like all the rest of the Cotton family. We mentioned previously that Marianne seemed to enjoy showing off her successful kills. It's possible that this statement was just an instance of her pushing boundaries yet again. Criminology professor Scott A. Bond noted that it's common for long-operating killers to take more risks and become sloppier, flaunting their crimes, until eventually they make a mistake that gets them caught. But even this confession didn't out Marianne. At least, not yet. Riley attributed Marianne's comment to hysteria and ignored her claims. His inaction spelled seven-year-old Charles Edwards' doom. Mere days after Marianne's conversation with Riley, he died of a fever and convulsions, all consistent with arsenic poisoning. It's hard to say for sure what day Charles Edward died because Marianne didn't notify the authorities right away. She wasn't finished killing, and she wanted to handle the funeral planning and the associated expense all at once. So she almost immediately moved on to her next victim. Joseph Natras had to at least suspect that he was in danger. He'd witnessed firsthand how Marianne flitted from husband to husband over the years, leaving them all dead of the same strikingly similar symptoms. Marianne had so far gotten away with her murders because she frequently moved from town to town. In an era before the internet, TV news, or even telephones, few people could have tracked the pattern closely enough to spot the similarities. But Natras had known Marianne the whole time, and he wasn't stupid. When he fell ill in 1872 with convulsions and fever, he surely understood what they really meant. Unfortunately, he was too sick to say anything to anyone. Meanwhile, Marianne was getting arrogant. She delighted in calling doctors to the scene and watching them struggle to diagnose her victims. She got a thrill out of dancing right up to the edge of exposure. Criminology professor Scott Bond observed that while most serial killers don't want to get caught, they do sometimes crave recognition for their actions. These murderers strike a fine balance between showing off, courting attention, and trying to remain hidden. When Natris eventually died in the summer of 1872, doctors ruled that his death was of natural causes. Thomas Riley learned of Charles Edward Cotton's death in early July of 1872. 
Only six days had passed since his conversation with Marianne about admitting Charles Edward to the workhouse. One afternoon, he walked past her home and saw her crying at the front door. When he stopped to ask what was wrong, she announced that her stepson had died. Marianne invited Riley to come and examine the child's body for himself. Again, she seemed to take some kind of pleasure in showing off her deadly work. Marianne's earlier statement ringing in his ears, Riley reported directly to the police station. He shared his suspicions that Marianne had murdered Charles Edward and possibly the entire Cotton family. Unfortunately for Marianne, Charles Edward hadn't yet been buried, so the police immediately ordered an autopsy. Dr. William Byers Kilburn performed the procedure right in the Cotton's kitchen. His initial examination returned nothing unusual and no signs of foul play, but he collected stomach and fecal samples for later testing. In the meantime, he confirmed with the police that he saw no evidence that Charles Edward had died of anything but natural causes. Marianne breathed a sigh of relief as her stepson was finally interred. That reprieve proved short-lived. Three days later, on July 13th, 39-year-old Marianne responded to a knock at the door. It was the police with a warrant for her arrest. After this, we'll explore Marianne Cotton's trial and how her case changed the world. Now back to the story. After poisoning an estimated 14 people, her husbands, her children, her stepchildren, and mother, 39-year-old Mary Ann Cotton was finally arrested on July 13, 1872. Stomach samples from 7-year-old Charles Edward Cotton's autopsy proved he died of arsenic poisoning. With hard evidence to back up workhouse owner Thomas Riley's accusations, they charged Marianne with murder. While the lab results were damning on their own, the police continued gathering evidence against Marianne. On September 14, 1872, they exhumed Joseph Natras, who died shortly after Charles. On October 15th, Frederick Cotton Sr., Frederick Cotton Jr. and baby Robert Robson Cotton were also unearthed for autopsies. Unfortunately, most grave sites weren't marked, and the cemeteries were operated by churches that didn't keep thorough records of who was buried where, so finding the right corpse to exhume was a bit of a guessing game. It took investigators seven tries before they dug up the right coffin and found Joseph Natras's body. Eventually, Natras and the three Cottons were examined. Police found further evidence of arsenic poisoning in their stomachs, digestive tracts, and fecal matter. The salacious details of the investigation were soon featured in hundreds of newspapers. Instantly, the public was convinced that she was guilty, certain to be executed. But 39-year-old Mary found an unlikely reprieve in mid-1872 when she realized she was pregnant. For the sake of the unborn child, 
the court waited until after the birth to begin her trial. In January of 1873, Margaret Cotton was born. By the time Mary Ann's trial began on March 5, 1873, she developed an astute legal strategy. In an effort to cultivate juror sympathy, she often nursed Margaret in the courtroom. On the stand, she gave dramatic, tearful testimony about her grief over the deaths of her loved ones. Author and litigation consultant Richard Gabriel noted that in spite of ongoing attempts to keep the court system unbiased, most jurors still make rulings primarily on emotional grounds, and nothing tugs at the heartstrings quite like a grieving, nursing mother. Marianne had no way of countering the clear evidence that her victims had all died of arsenic poisoning, but she tried to argue that the victim's exposure had all been accidental. Perhaps they'd swallowed some of the hand soap she used, which contained arsenic. Her husbands and children, all of them, could even have eaten the arsenic-lined wallpaper that decorated several of her former residences. Her claims weren't as outlandish as they may have initially seemed. In 1862, Four children in London died of arsenic inhalation in a much-publicized case. The culprit? The green wallpaper that had lined their rooms. But the prosecution countered that Marianne and her housekeeper had never fallen ill. Therefore, wallpaper and soap couldn't account for the full story. To prove that the poisoning was intentional, they called witness after witness, people from every stage of Marianne's life. They collectively detailed the circumstances of each husband's death, as well as those of her mother and children. The jury heard over and over the identical symptoms of each of Marianne's alleged victims, all consistent with arsenic poisoning. For the first time in Marianne's life, authorities finally connected the string of mysterious and fatal illnesses that always followed England's Black Widow. Although most of the deceased were too decomposed to provide further autopsy evidence, the pattern of deaths was evidence enough in many people's minds. And the circumstantial evidence meant Marianne was further condemned in the papers. In Victorian England, the standards for journalism were different than they are today. Many publications blamed Marianne for other suspicious deaths with no evidence or proof. For example, the press openly speculated that Marianne poisoned Frederick Cotton's sister. However, her symptoms were more consistent with pneumonia than with arsenic poisoning, and it's likely she was already sick or dead before Frederick even met Marianne. Much of the written record that remains today of Marianne's life comes from those news stories and court transcripts. As a result, most of what we know of her personality, motives, and demeanor are distorted through the frenzied lens of the time and reports that were designed to make Marianne's case as sensational as possible. Some historians even think that Marianne Cotton was considerably less prolific than history gives her credit for. In his book, Marianne Cotton, Dark Angel, Author Martin Connolly hypothesized that Marianne may not have even murdered the Mowbrays, George Ward, or the Robinson family. 
Instead, he posits that they all simply died because of the Victorian era's poor medical practices. Connolly instead believes that Marianne was mostly a victim of circumstance who suffered loss after loss before she finally snapped and killed the Cottons. He continued, the independent-minded would surely accept that there is reasonable doubt. Was she guilty of any murders? I struggle to answer this question. Whether Marianne Cotton was the cold-blooded black widow of England or just an ordinary woman who got in over her head, nobody was surprised when, in mid-March of 1873, she was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. After she received the verdict, Marianne Cotton remained in prison for only a few weeks, with nothing to do but anticipate her coming death. She launched a letter-writing campaign, trying desperately to convince old friends and acquaintances that she was innocent, but to no avail. The circumstances of Marianne's death were particularly cruel. On the morning of March 24, 1873, she left her prison cell to meet her fate. Shortly after 8 a.m., 40-year-old Marianne stepped onto the gallows. In her final moments, she prayed under her breath. While the witnesses couldn't make out all of her words, they did hear her repeat, Lord have mercy. The hangman slipped the noose around Marianne's neck and pulled the lever. The trap door dropped. But the fall didn't break Marianne's neck. Instead, for three full minutes, she jerked and twitched slowly suffocating. It was a drawn-out, painful end. On the morning of March 24, 1873, Marianne Cotton was dead. But the social circumstances that had created her killer streak persisted. As we discussed in part one, Marianne followed in the footsteps of a long line of poor women who poisoned in order to get ahead during England's hungry 40s. During Marianne's lifetime, it became increasingly common to ignore uncomfortable and unsightly issues, like the increasing gap between the rich and the poor in Western society. And while the wealthy and the powerful shamed and even tried to punish the impoverished, economic inequality only became more widespread and entrenched. However, Industrialization soon set Victorian English society on its ears. As the cost of various items decreased, impoverished people began to buy more manufactured goods, which in turn meant these products were no longer status symbols and class signifiers. Old-fashioned ideas about money and employment were unseated as business ownership became achievable for people outside the old moneyed class. In addition, new legislation in the late 19th and early 20th centuries granted women rights to vote and own property. Within decades of Marianne Cotton's death, disadvantaged women had legal means to get ahead and no longer had to resort to murder. Ted Picone of the World Justice Project found that low homicide rates correspond with societies that allow for freely practiced democratic elections. 
He suggested this was likely because people with more social power and freedom are also willing to work within the system to resolve their problems non-violently. Perhaps, if Marianne Cotton had access to more opportunities, she wouldn't have left such a trail of death and bloodshed in her wake. The stories of Marianne Cotton that survive today are fictions, the creations of newspapers, court reporters, and gossiping witnesses. But that hasn't stopped storytellers from introducing their own spins on Marianne's narrative. The gray areas in her story mean that authors and audiences can project any meaning into her life they want. Is she greedy and heartless? A tragic symbol of female oppression? An early example of shame culture run amok? In the fall of 2016, ITV debuted their show, Dark Angel. The miniseries depicted Marianne Cotton's life over two episodes. While the series strived not to judge Marianne too harshly, its quick introduction and dispatching of each husband and child seemed to depict her as a cruel, calculating killer. One thing that we can say with some certainty is that the real Marianne Cotton longed to be free. She was born into a restrictive society that allowed her only one path in life, and she spent her adulthood striving to break off of that narrow road. Instead, she killed many innocent victims and eventually lost her own life. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Andy Waits. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.